Tonight we continue uh, in the second week of our fall series called Legacy, as Pastor Tim mentioned, looking at the life of Isaac and Jacob and this legacy of faith that they got from Abraham that they inherited and passed on to each other. Well, it's been said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And if you think about it, who are the people in your life who you most have imitated from? And I think for nearly all of us, there's certainly exceptions to the rule, but for for the vast majority of us, the people who our lives have become imitators of the most, we probably don't have to look outside our own family, right? If we look at our own family and the people that we lived with growing up and in our developmental years, we see a lot of characteristics and imitations in our lives. For a lot of us, we look like our family, We look like our parents or or a combination, or for some of us, we look very much like one of our parents, and we're we're a a good image of them. I remember many years ago, I was uh, at my my grandma's house, my my mom's mom, and we were looking through um, some photo albums, because that's what you do at grandma's house, right? You find pictures of of your parents when they were little kids. And there was this one picture that my wife found, and she pointed at it, and she jokingly went, look, it's you with a dress on. Because if you would have put and taken just a picture of the face, you would not have been able to tell if it was my mom or me as a cute two or three-year-old kid in the picture. We looked exactly alike when we were young. We not just look like the people around us. Oftentimes, we, we start to talk like the people around us and the culture in which we live. It's easy to tell people who've been raised down south, isn't it, y'all? Right? People ask me why I say dude so much. I say I'm from California. Doesn't everyone say dude all the time? That's the way in which I lived and the, the way in which I was brought up. Not only that, but oftentimes um, the reality is, is, is sociologists have done research, but actually our faith oftentimes looks a lot like our parents' faith. There's, this is, uh, again, this is, obviously there's exceptions to this, but th- there's been lots of studies done, especially in recent years as we've thought about um, who stays and what, how do kids, do they become and do they stay Christians as they merge into adulthood. And the leading sociologist who at the time was at the University of Notre Dame, who did a longitudinal study over nearly a decade and a half of research following thousands of kids from early adolescence into adulthood, basically would say this. He said, if you want to look at the faith of a teenager, as they're adults, just look at what their parents are. And that's basically what they'll almost always become, which is a sobering and encouraging, but also sobering reminder for those who are parents that the faith that our kids will have one day often is the thing that they imitate and they look at our lives and they see modeled in us. Well, today we're going to look at Isaac's faith in Genesis chapter 26. And we're going to look tonight at how Isaac's faith mimicked that of his father, Abraham, who is the main character in Genesis chapter 12 through 25. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I'd encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 26. You received a handout as you came in, um, but we're going to look at nearly 30 verses tonight, actually a little over 30, so they're not all printed there. So so if you're able to have um, a Bible, either you brought one with you or there's one on your device, I'd encourage you to follow along with, with us in Genesis chapter 26. This chapter is interesting because this is really the only chapter in the Bible in which Isaac is the central and main character. 
It's interesting, isn't it? If you're familiar with Christianity, this Isaac is one of the, the patriarchs, the forefathers of our faith, and yet really Genesis 26 is the one chapter that's really about him, as we'll start to see next week in Genesis 27, and immediately kind of goes again to Jacob and Esau, and the legacy of faith followed after him. But our text starts tonight in chapter 26, verse 1. It says this, Now there was a famine in the land, Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. That famine is recorded in Genesis chapter 12. It says this, Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land in which I shall tell you. And so there is famine in the land. And so they are looking now for food. And so they travel, this, the famine back then, you have to remind yourself, the famine back then isn't like how we think of food today. For us, if there's a famine somewhere, we go, all right, well, there's not going to be fresh apples. I'll just get everything else that they still have at Jewel or Mariano's or Aldi or wherever we shop. But for them, it meant if you didn't move, if you didn't do something drastic, your life was probably over or at least at severe risk. And so they headed from where they lived out to the coast, which would have been the main road to head down to Egypt. But on the coast there in Gerar, God appeared to Isaac. And he's there with a man named Abimelech, who is the king of the Philistines. Now Abimelech, if you remember back to the life of Abraham, if you journeyed with us last fall, Abimelech also appeared in the life of Abraham in chapters 20 and 21. Is this the same person? It may be, it may not be. We don't know. The name Abimelech literally means my father is king. And so scholars often think that this may just be the title given. So whoever is the king of the Philistines is given the name Abimelech. It may be a family name as well. But they're in the land, still in the land that God's promised them. But the plan was probably to head down to Egypt. But God says, don't go to Egypt. Verse 3, he says this, sojourn in this land... And I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The first thing we see, that how, Ab- or excuse me, how Isaac's faith mimicked that of Abraham's is his promise. Is the promise that he received from God mimics the same promise. It even says there in the text, just as the covenant, the oath that I swore to Abraham, so I am giving to you. So let's look back at Genesis chapter 12, which is on the screen, at the original covenant, the original promise that God gave to Abraham when he called him in Genesis 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's three big categories in Abraham's covenant with God that are also given to Isaac. Three big areas of covenant promises that God makes with both Abraham and Isaac. And those are land, offspring, and blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. Abraham was promised a land, and he didn't live in the land. He had to go and journey to the land. 
Isaac is in the land and God says, this land, I will give it all to you. Stay here. He's promised offspring, not just one or two kids, but like Abraham was, a multitude of kids, a multitude, as well as he's promised blessing, blessing from God. See, this chapter, while often overlooked as we look at the big scheme of Scripture, most of us aren't extremely familiar with this chapter, is extremely significant and that it shows that the promise that God gave to Abraham didn't die when Abraham died. The promise God gave to Abraham lived on through Isaac. And God reaffirmed that promise to Isaac. And we'll see later that God will continue to reaffirm that promise to Isaac's kids after this. It's extremely interesting though, isn't it? The timing of when God appears and gives this promise to Isaac. Notice that it happens in the time of famine. There's a famine in the land Isaac thinking, I need to save myself and my family. We're going to leave. God shows up and says, no, here's my promise. And what I actually want you to do is stay. Stay in the land. Stay during the famine. Basically, God's saying, I want you to trust me right where you are in the midst of all of these difficult circumstances, Isaac, that don't make any sense to you. See, the confidence that Isaac had in God and the confidence that we should have in God doesn't come from the circumstances in which we find our lives, but from God's unchanging promises to us. That's where our confidence should be found. God wanted Isaac to stay in the famine and there experience the blessing that he had for him, not to leave the difficulty and figure it out his own way. As I was thinking about the timing of this and that it happened during the famine, I was struck with how I so often think about difficult circumstances and trying times in my life. And I don't think I'm the only one who thinks about things this way. I I would think this is true of a lot of us, that when we find times in our lives that are difficult circumstances, a comparison, a famine in the land, when there's relational difficulty, when there's issues at work, when you're in physical pain, any number of things, any number of trial or difficulty that will come in your way, what I find myself so often praying is, God, change my circumstances. Right? God, change my circumstances. Make this go away. Do this. Make that. Now, can God change circumstances? Of course he can. He's God. But what I find interesting in this, and I was reminded of it this week, is that in pain and suffering, God often doesn't want to change our circumstances. He wants to change our heart. And God will oftentimes keep us in difficult circumstances like how he kept Isaac in the famine because he had a greater purpose in mind. He wasn't after changing of circumstances. What God was after was changing Isaac's heart. And oftentimes in our lives, we're crying out to God, God, change my circumstances, change my circumstances. And God's saying, what if I want to change you, not the circumstances around you? God is more interested in the character of our lives and who we become in him than the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So God makes this promise, just as he made to Abraham, he made to Isaac in the midst of famine. Verse 6, so Isaac obeyed God. He settled in Gerar. When the men of this place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking, 
lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. And your radar screen should immediately go up and go, wait, 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 wait. This is not the first time we've heard such things like this. And you are correct. In Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was running away from famine, he went to Egypt and he said, this is Sarah, she is my sister. And God judged Abraham because of it. He experienced some pain and difficulty. And then later in Abraham's life, he went to Abimelech, to the Philistine territory, and he was afraid because his wife is beautiful. Again in chapter 21, and, and Abraham says, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. And now Isaac shows up in the same territory with the same excuse and does the exact same thing and says, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, uh, the, the, that's a play on words. Isaac's name means laughter. And so Isaac, it's literally Isaac was Isaac king with his wife. Um, it doesn't quite translate as, as laughing, but in lots of Bibles, you'll see a little note that says down to the bottom that this is often a word in Hebrew that's used for um, an intimate relationship, often has a sexual connotation to it. We don't know what Isaac and Rebecca were doing. All we know is that to anyone, it's not something that siblings do that's appropriate to each other. Right? So something is doing and going on, and suddenly his, he's like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And so verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, so you would have been guilty, brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. The second way that Isaac mimics the faith of his father Abraham is his failure. His failure is just like that of his father's. In Abraham's case in chapter 12, a plague was the result of how his disobedience was found out. In chapter 20, it was revealed to the king by a dream, but here it's revealed to, to the king by looking out and observing what's going on. And a pagan king now lectures the promised one of God on his own righteousness because Isaac fell into failure. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, God's people continually falling into failure. That the covenant, as we've sung and as we'll keep looking at, the covenant God makes is not dependent upon one person's obedience, but it's dependent upon God's faithfulness. That is the foundation for the covenant. This is also a sobering reminder to us, and the reality is this. We pass on more than just the good things about us to those who come behind us. They see not just our faith, but they see our faults and our failures as well. And we need to take seriously the, the sin and the faults in our lives because the people around us are watching us. Notice what Isaac says when his sin is found out. He says this, because I thought. Because I thought this, so I did this. 
Isaac is rationalizing his sin. He rationalized it in his own mind for a long time. It says they had lived there for a long time. And many of us are guilty of this in our lives, of rationalizing our sin rather than repenting of our sin when we're confronted with it. See, the rationalization is a slippery slope that leads into more and more sin. It's really the sin of self-deception, of lying to ourselves over and over again. Rationalizations often look like phrases like this, yeah, but I'm lonely, but I've been hurt so bad before, but I'm tired, or that's just the way I am. We rationalize sin in our lives all the time. We make excuses for our behavior. And if that's true in your life, if there's something in your life that comes up repeatedly that you find yourself rationalizing, I would encourage you tonight to stop rationalizing your sin and instead start repenting of your sin. Stop rationalizing your sin. Well, if you just knew my circumstances, if you knew what life was like right now, then, but no, because I thought it would be okay, because I thought, well, just this one time. No, we need to stop rationalizing sin and start repenting of sin. Because the reality is sin will be exposed. And this, since God even used a pagan king to expose the sin of Isaac. And so his sin is exposed. Verse 12, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. See, that that phrase is given in there, but it's clear that we would see God's blessing on this anyways. Remember, this takes place in times of famine. This is in the time of famine that Isaac decides to plant crops. So he sows in the land and he reaps. When does he reap this? Does he reap this long off in the future because of compound interest and it all came back good for him in the end? No, he reaped in the exact same year, how much back? A hundred times over what he sowed. This is an extravagant, God-ordained thing that no human person could have explained, that God was clearly blessing him. Verse 13 continues, And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled all it filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, "Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we." Isaac has become so blessed by God, such a prosperous people that the people around him are not only becoming envious of him, they're getting jealous of him and they're feeling threatened. And so they ask him to leave. And we have this little parenthesis noted that all the water inland, these wells had already been filled in. Verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And he dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, That water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, which literally means dispute or contention, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna, which means accusation. 
And he moved from there and dug another well. Can't live without wells. You can't live without water. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, for we shall become fruitful in the land. The third way that Isaac's faith mimicked that of his father is his welfare. Is the welfare and blessing that God provided in Isaac's life. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 12, right at the beginning of the Abraham story, after he's called to go to the land, famine comes. He leaves the land because of famine, and he goes to Egypt. And once he returns out of Egypt, he returns a rich and wealthy man. Isaac, in time of famine, leaves the land, goes outside of where he originally lived, and once he starts to walk back into land, becomes a rich and a wealthy man. Now, does this mean that if we follow God, that we too will get kicked out of land and we'll come back rich and wealthy? No. I know you're all thinking, yes, this is going to be great. He's going to pass out money when he's done tonight. That's not how this works. God is not promising us that we will all become rich and wealthy if we follow the same God of Abraham and Isaac. What this passage once again highlights for us is the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. Because how Isaac accumulated his wealth and prosperity was not, could not be explained by simply human terms. You don't plant in a year of famine and sow, sow in that year and reap a hundredfold that same year. That just doesn't happen unless God makes it happen. And so we see Isaac's prosperity is not because of his own doing, but it's because of God's doing. That which God has promised will come to happen. And God promised Isaac that he would bless him. And because God promised that he would bless him, it will happen. Because if God says it, it is going to take place. We can trust God's word. I remember there was... uh, Many years ago in, in sports, there was a, a player who loved in the playoffs to guarantee that his team was going to win the next game. And all the announcers and all the coverage, they would like obsess and talk about this player guaranteeing that his team was going to win the next game. And I was always confused because I'm like, he actually can't control that himself. Like if the other team just does better than he does, like he loses and his guarantee means nothing. And if they win, he sounds great. And if they lose, he'll be like, oh, okay, whatever. And it's not a big deal. When God guarantees something, it's not a toss-up on if it will come true or not. When God guarantees that something will happen, it will happen. God doesn't promise us material blessings. We don't have that promise like Abraham had, like Isaac had, but we get something better. The book of Ephesians says that for those who are in Christ, all the spiritual blessings are promised us in him. And Paul in the book of Ephesians flushes out what are these spiritual blessings that people can have in Jesus Christ. And he says you can be chosen by God. You're loved by God. You're redeemed by his blood. You've received his grace. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're promised an eternal inheritance. And all that is the spiritual blessing that you've been given by Jesus. Now, how can we trust that that actually will be true in our lives? Because if God says so, then it is so. 
Because God has proved himself faithful throughout all of history. That when God says, I will bless this person, he will bless. And when God promises us every spiritual blessing in Christ, he will give us every spiritual blessing for those of us who believe in Jesus. Not because of anything we've done, but because God is a faithful God. Verse 23 says, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And their Isaac's servant dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuza, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of the army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you have, excuse me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We saw plainly that the Lord has been with you. See, his blessing wasn't from his own doing. Everyone saw that his blessing was because it was God's hand on his life. They said, so we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done to you and nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So they go to Beersheba and the same day they arrive in Beersheba, the Lord appears. That same night. It was in Beersheba was the final home of his father, Abraham. It's where he set up his dwelling once he was settled in the land. Interesting enough, in chapter 21, Abraham also makes a treaty with Abimelech, these same people group. And afterwards, do you know where he moves to? He moves to Beersheba after he makes this treaty just as Isaac does. The fourth way that we see Isaac's faith mimicking that of Abraham's is his worship. The fourth way we see Isaac's faith mimicking that of his father Abraham is his worship. We're told that God once again, in verse 25, appears to him and gives him another promise, an affirmation of who he is and what he will do in Isaac and in Isaac's family. And in response to that, we're told that Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. It's the same response that Abraham had in chapter 12 to God making a covenant with him. In chapter 13, Abraham worshiped the Lord. And again in chapter 22, when God reaffirmed the covenant and that Isaac indeed would be the one who would carry on his name, Abraham again built an altar and worshiped God. I love that his response to this is worship. And The command that's given to him, he has one command in all that God addresses to him in in these verses. It's this. The command is, fear not. Fear not. 
Isaac, I've promised you this. I've done this. He's already seen how God has provided, how God has miraculously blessed when no one could explain. And so God's one command to Isaac, the one thing that he was called to do was to fear not. See, our fear often hinders our worship to God. When we're living lives based on fear, it hinders our ability to worship God and to see God in everything that we do. See, when, when we're young and when we're around people who are, who are little, we see that kids sometimes have funny and almost irrational fears at times. I remember a story that one of my friends told about their daughter when she was young, that she was sitting out on their back porch by herself playing away when suddenly there was like the loudest scream you could ever imagine, every parent's nightmare. And they go running out to the back porch to where their daughter is seated, expecting like the worst thing imaginable. They're thinking blood must be coming, like what, what's going on? And she's sitting there screaming, sitting, and she's pointing to an ant crawling across the deck. The ant is coming to get her. She had this irrational fear. And we think as adults, we grow out of irrational fears like that. We move away from fear because we're older and we don't think the same way. Yet for often times, our lives are motivated by fear rather than by faith in God. The way we interact with people shows that we're afraid of losing people because of the loss we've already experienced in our lives. Some of us are afraid of intimacy, and so anytime someone gets close to us, we push them away. Some of us are afraid of failure, and so we work hard, not to win the approval of God, but to look good to the people around us, because we don't want to look like a failure. Some of us fear rejection by other people. Some of us fear change, and we always want things to stay exactly the same. How do we overcome these real fears in our lives? How was Isaac supposed to overcome the fear that could be very real in his life? The command is this, fear not, why? For I am with you. The promise that's given to Abraham, it's given to Isaac, and it's repeated throughout the Old Testament. Fear not. Why can we not live in fear? Why is it wrong for a Christian to live their life motivated by fear? Because God is with us. That's why we don't have to live in fear. Not because we've overcome all of the hurt and the pain, but because God is with us. In the midst of any fear you may be experiencing in your life today, can I encourage you to rely on your faith in God? In the midst of our fears, to rely on our faith in God. God made a promise to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, that he would be with them. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, God has promised that he will always be with you. The Bible says that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So we can leave our fears behind because we have faith in the faithfulness of God. God, we thank you that you are a God who can overcome all of our fear. That you are a God who is with us, who knows us, and who loves us. God, may the reality of your work in our lives cause us to worship you tonight.
God, may we repent of any sin and stop rationalizing our behavior. God, may we grab hold of the promises that you've given us and trust that they will come to completion because you are a faithful God. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.